1: Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money my job. Not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. How do you approach this bounce? Dow gaining 241 points today. S&P climbing 0.69%. NASDAQ advancing 0.49%. Is this a tradable low? Perhaps a reason to get more comfortable. Is this the more placid opportunity to do some buying? Buy, 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 buy! Frankly, I'm not that sure. Look, I'm not saying we can't keep rallying here on Monday. The ratio of down volume to up volume was 9 to 1. My friend Mark Haynes, the late great Squawk Box anchor, always counseled me that 9 to 1, that's right, 9 to 1 down to up volume, was the signal that a sell-off is overdone. That's how he called the generational bottom nine years ago. It was a great lesson for me. And it sure worked like a charm with the intraday bounce on Monday. We flew up again Tuesday, but the true test came yesterday with a remarkable turn after the Chinese tariffs were announced. The chartists would say that we tested the February lows and we held, and now we are off to the races! All aboard! But here's what worries me. What if all we do is hold, then bounce, then sell off again before yet another retest of the lows and then bounce? I mean, just because we made it out of the woods of Monday and then the bounce yesterday, doesn't mean it's gonna be smooth sailing. Whenever we're down big, I like to stress what can go right because unless the economy is literally falling apart there's almost always a better time to sell than right into the teeth of panic. You don't sell when everyone else is selling. And by the same token, you should not be buying when everyone else is buying, especially not in this market. Uh, We've caught a very strong rebound. I'm not denying that. I now think you need to be a little more cautious, and let me tell you why. First, we have an employment number tomorrow that could really help us or really hurt us. But given that the averages have now run going into this labor report, even if we get a strong number, I wouldn't be surprised if we rally and then give up our gains. I could easily see the market climbing on a healthy jobs number only to go lower once we see the yield on the 10-year ticking closer to 3%. Remember, in February, we got an amazing non-farm payroll number. And in response, the market got annihilated. It's burned in my head. You should be thinking about it too. On the other hand, the nation's largest home builder, Lenore, told us this week that the participation rate, not the actual employment rate, but the participation rate is the one to watch. Uh, because if more people are joining the workforce, that means more homes being bought, even if mortgage rates go up. I like that. Plus, in February, we still had no idea where uh, that there were so many people betting that the market would remain placid. If you have all those instruments tied to the VIX, remember that? When those bets started going awry, the market got crushed. We're now aware of the risk, although those positions haven't been totally unwound yet. On top of that, we got a new Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, and the market seems to want to challenge him with some sort of extreme reaction. Put it all together in tomorrow's number, rightly or wrongly, and we could and we will get to that later in the show. It could be fraud with pearls. So I'm focused on it. Hey, listen, if we were down big ahead of it, I wouldn't be so concerned. Second reason to be a tad more cautious than we should have been last going into this week. President Trump has stopped judging his job performance based on the stock market. Now, maybe Trump was never really taking his cue from the market. It just seemed that way uh, when he was pushing a totally pro-business agenda and stocks kept going higher. Maybe these days he'd rather judge his job performance by looking at the one pollster that has approval rating above 51 percent. Rasmussen, know him well. Whatever the reason, it's undeniable that Trump has taken his economic agenda into a very different direction in 2018. He's now fulfilling his original campaign promises to protect workers in the Rust Belt from unfair foreign competition. The thing is, he can't fulfill those promises without hurting the broader stock market, which, like it or not, thrives on free trade. Which brings me to number three, China. When the Chinese decided to hit us back, By targeting airspace and agriculture with its newly proposed tariffs, the bulls were in for a world of hurt. Then Larry Kudlow, the president's new economic advisor and my erstwhile partner in Kudlow and Kramer, came out and told us how Trump is basically a free trader at heart. The thing is, haven't we seen this movie before? I mean, we had tough talk on trade from President Trump not that long ago, which freaked people out. Then the Treasury Secretary came on TV, told us that talks with Chinese were going smoothly. Turns out the opposite was true. Talks have broken down. Now Larry comes out and makes people feel like we can have fruitful discussions with China. Why? I actually find it hard to believe. Look, anything can happen. But it sure is a risk factor. And that's what I'm identifying tonight. Hey, by the way, notice how hard the stock of Apple rallied today and yesterday? You know why that was? I think because its name wasn't on the tariff list. How long can these last? if the president keeps pressing his bet. Do you know, I think the only thing saving Apple is that it's so many of its products were actually made in China and the Chinese do not want to cut off their noses and save their faces. Hey, speaking of risk factors, here's another one. We got a whole new one that was not being focused on enough, especially because of ETF relationships, a whole new fang wild card with the tr- president's tremendous onslaught against Amazon and Twitter. One of the few things that's predictable about our mercurial president is that he doesn't give up on anything Until he gets a win, even if it's only symbolic. Right now, he wants to rip up Amazon's contract with the Post Office, get a better deal. By the way, it should expire in the fall. As he regards this company as a destroyer of mom-and-pop retailers across America. More important, his naked antipathy for Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos could be a real problem here. Bezos owns the Washington Post, which the president believes is out to get him. And I worry that he'll stop at nothing to humble its owner. It's kind of his style. In truth, his arguments against Amazon are pretty specious. The post office has a pricing committee and a negotiated a contract with Amazon. Maybe they underpriced it, but a contract's a contract and it provides a lot of income that's used to subsidize first class men. We saw some research today said it's clear, definitely profitable. However, you don't need to be a huge cynic to believe that this is all about punishing Bezos. And the president's uh, uh, good for a negative tweet about Amazon pretty much every single day when he gets up. The problem is that Amazon is a huge 70%. Billion dollar company, and when its stock gets slammed, all of the FANG ETFs. Do you know that there are 10 of them? 10 ETFs that have Amazon as an anchor, and they all go down. They go down when he slams Amazon. Finally, we saved my worst fear for last. And you better be focused on this. Has it occurred to you that the president really has it in for Mexico? Uh, of that, there is no doubt. He wanted them to pay for the wall. He's mobilized soldiers to stop illegal immigration. Now he wants to renegotiate NAFTA. Theoretically, the president doesn't have the power to nullify a trade agreement without getting permission from Congress. Oh, but there's a lot he could do to torpedo NAFTA on his own. And if he goes there, the stock market will indeed freak out. So as much as I would love to sound an all clear, there are too many potential pitfalls. What about that too hot employment number? What about a president who no longer seems to care about that, that much about how the stock market's doing? What about FANG risk and China retaliation. What about NAFTA? You scrap that, I think you could kill the bull. Bottom line, don't be so quick to call this rebound a tradable bottom. If things go the wrong way, it could become an untradable non-bottom pretty quick. That's why I'm counseling caution despite what are some fabulous earnings reports that are right around the corner, some fantastic ones we've just had, and some really good rebounds in a whole lot of down-and-out sectors since the market peaked. Back in January. Elaine in Florida. Elaine. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. I'm interested in Midimax, specifically the short thesis and the allegations of fraud and the way the stock moves. When the market went down really hard, it didn't. But on normal days, it's under an awful lot of pressure from the short sellers. You know what? We have been like this. um, There's an aerospace company, an aerospace defense company that is in the grips of short sellers and NVIDIA is in the grips of short sellers right now. I have to do more work on this one because a short selling call that is not backed up by actual facts is something I don't like. So let me do more work. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it isn't. But I'm not taking any shorts word for anything. Let's go to Daniel in Florida, please. Daniel. Hey, Jim Kramer, this is Daniel from the Deer Beach, Florida. How are you? I am good. How about you? Oh, good. Nice breeze, open windows. There really, you go. Real good. Hey, I have a question. I'm calling about ticker symbol G-O-L-D Rangold. Right. They have had some problems over there, I think, uh, in Congo with the local government and a strike over in the uh, Ivory Coast, and I think as a result they – seem to be near their 52-week low, and I'm curious to know what your Thoughts are about initiating a position at these well, lower levels? You know, a lot of things, after we had Mark Bristol one, it was like a, just a huge tsunami of things that were not positive that occurred. But you know what? I think they're taking into account with the stock in the mid 70s. I am with you. Um, I know that they've been talking about production lagging forecasts, but geez, this stock has come down too much. Start a position here, I think makes sense. Let's go to Shane in Pennsylvania. Shane! Hey, Jim, how are you? First time caller. I just want to say go birds. Man, did they ever go. And don't forget Nova. Holy cow. Philadelphia city of Winners. What's up? I just want to say uh, the biotech started selling off before this terrorist yes. talk began. In particular, Celgene, uh, the sector seemed to be hit hard this week by the Chinese terrorists, but the tariffs seem unrelated to the industry. Is the biotech space and Celgene a buying opportunity? Well, you know, they just they just lost um, when I was away. They announced a, not, a COO exit. I didn't understand that. Uh, I don't understand the the uh, ever since. Uh, Bob, you retired. There have been a lot of things going wrong at Celgene and in kind of big biopharma. Do I feel the stock's bottom? Perhaps, but I have no catalyst, Shane, to tell you to do some buying. And I'd rather feel like there's so many stocks that have come down that I do have cattles for, I don't need to push it toward that one. All right, I would love to say we're out of the woods. I'd love to sound some sort of all clear, but I simply cannot do that. Let I me mean, take a look. I mean... There are many things that can hurt the bull and that's what you have to consider after a gigantic rally like we've had or well, mad money tonight i'm revealing what to watch for in tomorrow's non-farm employment report and it may surprise you then can spotify continue to strike a chord with investors i'll tell you if the company deserves a spot in your portfolio and it might be surprising in a world where brick and mortar retail has seen its business model threatened How are discount retailers like Ollie's Bargain Outlet, which we've been championing for two years, faring? I'm going to sit down with the CEO after earnings and the stock down today. Stick with Kramer.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad
0: Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag madtweets. Send Jim an email to MadMoney at CNBC.com, or give us a call. At 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
1: Why are people so afraid of tomorrow's big bad employment report? Simple. We're at the phase of an economic expansion where good news can easily become bad news. The sooner the jobs number, the more we need to worry that the Fed will have to accelerate its rate hikes, possibly derailing the economy. Now, we know rate hikes are good for the banks. They instantly become more profitable when the Fed tightens. However, business in general, higher rates are a problem, and particularly they're a problem for housing. In fact, I believe a really strong employment number would be met with a massive amount of selling S- in S- the S- stocks of the homebuilders as they're the most rate-sensitive group. But maybe that view is out of date. Maybe we're dealing with a different set of circumstances where the homebuilders have less to fear from rising interest rates than they did before the Great Recession. Where does this idea come from? Hey, you know what? I got it from listening to Lennar, the nation's largest home builder, on his conference call earlier this week. Hey, they ought to know, right? They're the most seasoned of all. It was a tour de force perform- a performance on that conference call, and it sent the stock from 57 to 64. And the reason? Because longtime CEO Stuart Miller explained that his business is roaring thanks to the labor participation rate. The percentage of the civilian population either has a job or is looking for a job. He said that figure and not the headline employment number itself is what really matters. Let me read you some of this stuff because Mueller is pretty persuasive in his logic. He said, and I quote, so look, interest rates tend to be a kind of flashpoint for home building, but it is never properly contextualized. Interest rates go up within the context of an environment, and the environment right now is one of low unemployment and generally wage growth and what is not talked about enough is participation rate miller continues what we've seen in what we're seeing in the field is that more of our customers are coming in with confidence. They're coming in with certainty about higher wages, end quote. In other words, the easier it is to get a job, the better the home-building business gets, and those trends can offset the impact of whatever higher rates we get. While the unemployment rate is very low at 4.1%, that doesn't count all the people who've dropped out of the workforce. Right now, the labor participation rate is uh, around 63%, down from 66% before the Great Recession. When those people rejoin the workforce, and they're going to, they can afford to buy houses again. Basically, there's a lot more slack in the labor market than the headline unemployment number would lead you to believe. I found Miller's logic downright stunning. I read this conference call twice. I know we're building far fewer homes than we used to when times were this good, and housing is is pretty supply-constrained nationwide. I know that only the big home builders can really navigate the challenges posed by federal, state, and local regulation. The effect of the new tax law is to stimulate the economy, and that's good for the home builders. Perhaps more important, the strong job market means that millions of millennials can finally afford to move out of their parents' basements and perhaps buy some property for themselves, particularly if they're having kids of their own. Yet the revelation that we're looking at the wrong number tomorrow is what gives me hope that even if the yield on the 10-year Treasury starts surging toward 3% again, this time we shouldn't rush to sell the homebuilders or housing-related retailers. Maybe instead we should be buying these stocks. And that's a huge and welcome change. I always say that panic is not a strategy. So if we see a large pickup in the participation rate and Lenore and the other homebuilders get hit anyway, these all domestic stocks... Well, they may be exactly the right names to buy in this new environment that's so much more hostile to international trade. Much more mad money at Spotify has helped revive the struggling music business. But can the streamer show a changed industry how to make a profit? Then, what can the latest earnings out of uh, Ollie's Bargain tell us about the state of the U.S. consumer? I'm gonna talk with the CEO and are the retail REITs on the clearance rack as i have said i've got the exclusive with one of the better mall operators Stick This week, Spotify finally started trading on the public markets, and we need to address what happened here, both because this was one of the most eagerly anticipated deals in ages, and just as important, what Spotify did is the polar opposite of what we see from every other red-hot tech company that takes itself public. Now, normally when a new company comes public, we like to play a game called Know Your IPO. But the Spotify deal was a little unusual. Spotify didn't have an initial public offering. They they did what's known as a direct listing. What's the difference? In an IPO, companies list brand new shares. In a direct listing, you only sell existing shares. So it's not diluted. And that's not the only unusual aspect of this deal. Spotify was emphatically not looking to make a big splash as part of this event. The company said we wanted to give its employees and other early shareholders a more liquid market so they could cash out, uh, cash in on their shares if they wanted to. They didn't do a road show, although they did this thing called a web show. They weren't at the New York Stock Exchange ringing the opening bell on Tuesday. CEO Daniel Eck barely gave any interviews. They barely collaborated with the investment banks at all. As Tom Farley, the president of the New York Stock Exchange, explained to Carl Quintanilla earlier this week.
0: Spotify cared less about, uh, uh, about that, that branding element and about raising capital because they have a near unlimited access to capital in the private markets. I've been working with them for two years. They've never talked about the bell or coming into this building.
1: I like that. I mean, put it even more bluntly, in a blog post on Monday night, Spotify's Daniel Leck came right out and he said, quote, what's even more important to me is that tomorrow does not become the most important day for Spotify, end quote. I love that. So often it seems to be the time. He, was, he wasn't desperately trying to raise capital. He was trying to do right by his employees. In every respect, it matters. This was the anti-IPO. So let's get to the meat of this story. For those of you who've been living in a cave for the past decade, Spotify is the online streaming service that has revolutionized the music industry. They have a free version that lets you listen to pretty much everything under the sun, but you've got to sit through uh, some ads. It's sort of like radio. Or you can pay $9.99 a month for unlimited ad-free access to 35 million different songs. Anytime. Anywhere. What Netflix is to video, Spotify is to audio. Just artificial intelligence-like. Just like Netflix, Spotify collects a tremendous amount of data about your listening habits, and they use that uh, to help you figure out what you want next. Yeah, I'm not kidding. It's an AI play. Spotify is the largest music streaming service on Earth. The company has 159 million monthly active users, of whom 71 million are paid subscribers. That's almost twice the size of Apple's 40 million paid subscribers. And these numbers are still growing like crazy. Last year, the monthly user count increased by 29%. And these are big numbers versus 2016. More importantly, premium subscribers increased by... Forty six percent. That's one major reason why I'm excited about this story. But it goes deeper than that. Spotify is a terrific concept, not just because this company almost single handedly saved the music industry. Hey, you know, even big name haters like Taylor Swift have come around. She just released her new video on Spotify last week before the ascendant. Spotify, the recorded music, uh, recorded music business had been in decline for 15 years. It was laid low by online privacy. Uh, Piracy. And I've got to tell you, I gave up on the business. And the only thing, the only place they ever made any money was the concerts. But after Spotify's subscription-based business model started gaining traction, the industry started growing again. And that's not a coincidence. People who aren't going to sell out $10 for an album on iTunes will gladly pay $10 a month for access to tens of millions of songs. And Spotify believes that the streaming market is still in its infancy. I agree. This one company has about 42% market share worldwide. And while Spotify's 159 million monthly average users may sound like a lot, you have to remember that there are 3.6 billion people in earth with internet access in just the 65 countries and territories where they do business right now there are 1.3 billion payment enabled smartphones oh that gives them a lot of runway for growth the essence of this story is that spotify is going to keep expanding in the markets where it's already operating while also moving aggressively into new regions they are gradually taking over the world people and even if apple can't catch up to them it's hard to imagine anyone else getting in their way what about the numbers Last year, Spotify grew its revenues at a 39% clip. And while there's a slowdown, that's a slowdown from 52% growth in 2016. I mean, it's still a phenomenal number. Meanwhile, Spotify's margins keep climbing to the point where the company's getting closer to profitability. This is one of those stories where you don't necessarily want to see them turning a profit yet. Because investing their, uh, their cash back into the business, much better use than money generating earnings. The free cash flow is positive. Balance sheet is clean as a whistle. $1.5 billion in cash. Short-term investment, zero debt. No wonder they could get away with doing this totally non promotional direct listing rather than issuing new shares in an IPO, and making that big splash. Beyond the stellar numbers, what really intrigues me is the fact that Spotify is one of the few services that people don't mind paying for. In fact, they tend not to even think about paying for it, just like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Sirius XM or Apple Storage, particularly for your pictures. Don't want to lose your pictures. And you know what? That's a great position to be in. I know I pay automatically for all five services. I never give it a thought. Spotify is indispensable in my house and in my kids' places. Now, it's harder to gauge the success of a direct listing than an actual initial public offering. But to give you some context, the lead advisor on this deal, Morgan Stanley, set a reference price of $132. Naturally, they were low-balling it. Spotify started trading at $165.90. I didn't really get that. It quickly shot up to an intraday high of $169. Didn't get that either. However, the stock then gave back much of those gains in the afternoon. Ultimately, closing at $149, down 10% from where it opened, but still up almost 13% from the reference price. Yesterday, it got hit again. Then today, it sold off late to finish lower, still closing at $144. Gift, people! These declines don't worry me, precisely because this is not an IPO. You can't judge it like an IPO because you don't have tons of institutional investors who got a bunch of stock at an artificially low offering price and then felt compelled to buy more in the aftermarket much higher, get a better average. The whole Spotify listing was about making it easier for insiders and early investors to do some selling. And many of these people got the shares at 20 and 30 bucks. Of course, they're going to ring the register at 150 And look, because it's not an IPO, there's no lockup, which means we could be deluged with another wave of insider selling anymore. Moment. Maybe the company will even have to do a secondary offering after investors get more comfortable with the stock. That's fine. Because Spotify is the kind of stock that gets cheaper as it goes lower. lower. Don't laugh. It's not that expensive to give us trades at 4.2 times this year's revenue estimates. That makes it cheaper than the much slower growing Sirius, 4.9, and much cheaper than Netflix, 8.1% times. Yes. 8.1 for Netflix with a similar growth forecast. If you give Spotify the same valuation as Netflix get this, you know where the stock would be? How about $275? I'm not saying it's going there, but compared to the peers, this stock could turn out to be a real bargain at 144. If it goes still lower, yes. Yeah, even better, given the potential for big earnings in the out years. Here's the bottom line. Spotify belongs to an elite club of companies where you don't even think about paying the bill every month. Its growth is phenomenal. And I bet growth-oriented money managers would be willing to pay a lot more for its stock. I think you can pick it in here, then buy a lot more into additional weakness. Yes, I do like Spotify that much. Let's go to Hunter in Pennsylvania. Hunter! Hi, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call from here in Montgomery County, PA. All right, Uh, Sherman, you're from my home area. What's up? Yes, sir. Uh, My question is about Live Nation. I bought the stock a few years ago. It's done pretty well for me, uh, but it's taken a hit since February. And now the DOJ has announced that they're going to look into the company for antitrust issues, I believe. uh, And that's got the price fluctuating this week. So I want to know if it's time to sell now and take my winnings, hold through the storm, or maybe even oh, buy boy, more. Oh, boy, I it saw that. Them. And I think about Michael Rapino and how honest and tough he is. He's tough for the shareholders. That's what he's always cared about. Um, dead 38. I don't like a Justice Department investigation. Um, oh, boy, I hate to tell you to ring the register of, uh, because of, the, uh, of what could happen with the DOJ review. So I'm going to tell you not to. I'm going to tell you to hold on. Take a long-term view. Chad in Georgia. Chad. Booyah, Ski Daddy. Booyah. Uh,
0: Professor Kramer, Pandora is currently down about 60% from its 52-week high. Mm -hmm. And with the arrival of Spotify... Would it be smart for me to increase my position in Pandora? No, no,
1: no! Increase your position in Spotify. Spotify is an amazing company. I cannot believe it—it came this cheap, but they didn't do a traditional pop IPO. It is an opportunity. Let's go to Bill in South Carolina. Bill, yes, sir. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I need your help. I need your help with Criteo. Symbol C R T O. Right, right. I'm long long the shares
0: in a qualified account at about fifty-two. The stocks have taken a precipitous slide ever since Apple came out with their ITP feature. Uh, they rolled out in September. Right. The, the shares got tanked. They got creamed in December. They reported well uh, fourth quarter 2017, but the stock is still at 26 and change. Is this a, do I add this position?
1: No, do you don't need that stock. You don't need that stock. There's so many other stocks that are doing well. I'm going to tell you that that's not one you need to be. All right. I spot, ha a real winner. Spotify. Its growth is real music to my ears. You have my blessing to get in on this newly public traded stock. Very rarely, I just say, go buy it. Watch more Man ahead. Ollie's bargain outlet is up 75% over the past year, but the stock took a hit today after a report. Is it now time to buy? Well, let's take a look. Then who says this isn't the most interactive show on television? After my takedown of the REITs a few weeks ago, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust is here to tell its side of the story. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer.
0: Tomorrow, kick off the trading
1: day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post Nine at the NYSE, Jim. Nice to have you back. Oh man, I'm you know. Next time I, I thought I could go away because there was no earnings. Little there's did I no, know. Yeah, there's no blackout window. Little anymore. did I know. No news. Any blackout. new tweet on Amazon? It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. <laughs> what just happened to <laughs> bargain outlet holding stock. Here's an off-price retail chain with a stellar long-term track record. Even as the rest of retail faltered, Ollie's stocks seem to be unstoppable because consumers, well, they can't resist a good deal. These guys can beat Amazon on price, which is why the company can keep expanding at a time when so many other brick-and-mortar merchants are retrenching. This stock has more than doubled since I started recommending it two years ago. It's up a quick 13% since the last time we spoke to the CEO in December. However, Ollie's reported last night it was for a dollar, a buck, sixty-five, one point six five percent, and was down much more during the intraday part of the session. The reason, even though the company delivered a nice two cent earnings beat off a forty cent, forty-nine cent basis, with better than expected revenue up nearly twenty-six percent year over year, stronger than anticipated same store sales up four point four percent. Management's full year revenue guidance came in below some firms' expectations. Same store sale forecast was considered light by some. So, is this viable pullback, or should we be concerned? About about the guidance. Let's check in with Mark Butler. He's the chairman CEO of Ollie's Bargain Outlet Holdings. Learn more about the quarter where his company's headed. Mr. Butler, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Hi, Have a seat. Great to see you. Right, well, Mark, I've been following the company since it came public. And as you said, when it came public, you thought you could do a 1% to 2% comp, mid-teen story growth. You've done consistently better than that. You, you, but you've been sticking by the mantra. And then today, someone decides that's not enough, a Bank of America Merle. Um, you're ahead of plan on every metric.
0: You know what, Jim? Since we went public in June of uh, July of fifteen. Every single metric that we have set forth, every piece of guidance we have either met or exceeded, we have beaten every single one. I always said we were a 1% to 2% comp story. Right. That was it. No more. And we've we've asked everybody. And the analysts that have been with us from the beginning— They understand it. They get it. We're a 1% to 2%. We gave that guidance again. We're coming off of our biggest, our best, our brightest year ever. I couldn't be happier with that. Well,
1: you're the strongest retailer I follow, so that makes sense. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that you say closeout deals are at a historical peak. Let's not forget Toys R Us. is this as good as you've ever seen it?
0: Absolutely. I've been doing this for nearly 36 years. It just simply has never been better. As we mentioned, and you know, we've, I've been fortunate to be with you several times, since we've gone public, I think that the buying environment has, has helped because more people know about us. They see us on TV. They see us talking. They hear us at, at investor conferences. More and more manufacturers have gotten to know us. Therefore, they're calling us with their, with their deals, with whatever they want to liquidate.
1: Okay, so the president's been on record. He's been attacking Amazon. Maybe that's because Jeff Bezos. Maybe. maybe he got a bad prime delivery. I don't know. But the one thing that is clear is, is that he's saying that you know, retailers have been wiped out by Amazon. You're under Amazon on most of the prices you sell.
0: Absolutely. And par- perhaps even more importantly, under underneath what we call the marts. Right. So, you know, that that's really what we what we attempt to do. Yeah. But, you know, brick and mortar, <coughs> this is how we make a living. It's right. never been better for us. Not ever been better for Ali's us. Army? How they doing? it oh, Nearly nine million members. It's like seven now. million
1: when I saw you last. Yeah,
0: it's growing faster That's than our incredible. store pace. And you know what we're gonna do is we're gonna I- introduce ranks this year. So you'll hopefully you'll learn to be a three-star general in the honor. Well, there
1: the are But three-star general, what kind of discount do I get? You're
0: gonna get you're gonna get an additional offer, you're gonna get special offers. I think it's gonna really res or, you know resonate right. to these bargainots.
1: One of the things I think people don't understand, almost every retailer is everywhere. There's no growth in and look, I love Home Depot, but they don't put up any new stores. Right. How much room do you have in this country to put up more stores?
0: We, we think we can grow upwards of 950 stores. I'm in 22 states with 274 stores now. That's a pretty good poke from now. So there is no reason why anybody should be less excited about Ollie's today than they were yesterday. So
1: give me an example. Like, are you in Texas? How many yet?
0: We don't have any in Texas yet. We'll likely be looking at our next distribution center somewhere near Texas. Okay. And that will open up the door for Texas.
1: Now, I I am trying to get people to understand that even though the economy is better, the consumer got used to bargains. They really didn't graduate to more expensive stuff this time. Is that just a new frugality and you're a beneficiary?
0: Well, I think so. And I think that it it started perhaps in 2007, 2008, 2009, when we had what we called the trade down effect, where people really needed to save money and they liked it. And then they gave so they gave us a shot. They liked what happened when they came in. We said thanks, and they keep coming back. Our business just simply has never been stronger.
1: Uh, In terms of planting a flag, uh, this Toys R Us bankruptcy has got to be one yeah. of your best, right? I mean, you've, you're open for business with that, with that inventory.
0: Jim, I, I think this is the perfect storm for us. I think twofold. Number one, there's going to be a lot of product that's going to be available because these manufacturers are losing their, one of their number one, if not their number yeah. one customer. The second thing is, is you know the, that, that toy retailer sold a lot of toys brick and mortar. Hopefully a lot of them, or many of them, or some of them, are going to come to Hollies and buy toy closeouts. I think it's a perfect storm. I think it's a win-win on both sides of the equation for and
1: us. Last thing I mean, I, we had a, a real estate investment trust on tonight, there's no doubt about it. There are some strong stores, and there's experiential economy. But the bankruptcies continue. Yeah. They have not abated. And when I see a bankruptcy, do I think good for Hollies? Yeah, I think so. It, it usually takes a little bit of
0: time okay. for the pain to set in until I become attractive uh, and on the leasing side. Right. Because we don't pay much, uh, you know, much like we get our goods, right. we're, we're tough on our leases but we pay we bring uh, we revitalize shopping centers we bring a right. lot of customers and you know that's why our parking lots are you know are packed our stores are
1: rocking and that's why the payback is two years yeah really Re- really
0: good new store performance is you know off
1: the charts well people got an intraday chance i don't know if they're going to get another it was such a great opportunity thought i wish i had a show at 12 o'clock that's mark butler the chairman and ceo of alway's bargain outlet holdings this has been the best retail story we've covered, and I think it's just gotten better. We have money's back for the break. It is time for the light Round. And then the Lighting Round over. Are you ready? Skate Daddy. Time for the light Round. i want to start with Nina and Marilyn. Nina, Hi, Jim. Thank you for everything so much. Uh, oh, Listen, you. I have Alibaba. I don't know what they're yeah, holding. Yeah, Alibaba's one of uh, just a handful ah, of Chinese stocks that I like here. I also like Baidu and I like Balzon. And I'm not backing away from Baba despite some of the negativity I read today. How about Brian in Florida? Brian. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on your show. Quite welcome. Uh, you've interviewed CEO Bill Sandbrook, and he seems like a great guy. He has reiterated his goal of growing his company's EBITDA, which currently stands at about $170 million. What is a fair EBITDA multiple, and what do you think about it? Look, US i got to tell you, this stock is uh, its now 12 times earnings. I mean, it just goes straight out earnings. I think it deserves maybe a 15 multiple. The stock has come down hard. I think it's an opportunity, ah, not, my my not a c- situation to run from. I agree with you, by the way, about Bill Sandbrook. I think he's a good man. Let's go to Ron in California. Ron. Booyah, Jim. Ron. Booyah, Ron. Hey, what's your take on Micro Focus? Is it a buy opportunity? Oh, man. Enterprise Application Management Solutions, stay away. It's too hard. It's just too hard. Let's go to Bill in Florida. Bill.
2: Hi, Jim. I want your opinion on Magellan Midstream Partners. All right, MMP. ouch.
1: My travel trust sold, and today it gets upgraded. Why did we sell? Because I just don't like what's going on with FERC and the Permian. But you know what? I think you're getting an opportunity to be able to say, okay, I don't like these master limited partnerships. Let's go. I need to speak to Neil Missouri, Neil. And hey, Jim, big fan of yours, and I'm planning to put uh, financial stock into my portfolio, and I was thinking about uh, Synchrony Financial. I think what Synchrony's do you okay. Uh Uh, My friend Bruce Kamich, who works with me at RealMoney.com, says that that Visa chart's really good, and I happen to like Visa management, truly continually trying to get them on air. I'd rather you go with Visa. Let's go to Kathleen in Utah. Kathleen. Yes, Mr. Kramer. I would value your opinion on AXP. Holy cow. Marketing Express, another one I don't like as much as Visa, although I understand the story but I would prefer Visa 121 than in 94. Let's go to Ron in Texas. Ron. Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm asking about 8. Uh, 8 by 8, symbol ETH. Oh, my God. I remember this when we first started this show 13 years ago. I liked it, but you know what? I'd rather just see in Cisco. I think that's a better situation. CSCO kind. And that ladies the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
0: The Lightning Round. Is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: As I've told you before, it's been very rough owning retail oriented real estate investment trusts of late. The combination of store closures and rising interest rates, which offset their high yields, has made these stocks downright toxic to your portfolio. Hey, but you know what? I could be wrong maybe the worries are real overblown we always want to hear the other side of the story which is why i am so glad to have pennsylvania real estate investment trust symbol pei here with us tonight this is a company that owns 29 retail properties mostly shopping malls across the middle atlantic especially pennsylvania philly washington dc but in addition to its mall exposure pennsylvania real estate also has a gargantuan 8.5% yield at these levels, which is sometimes not a great sign because when a yield gets that high, it indicates that there's a lack of confidence from the market. So let's dig deeper with Joseph Cardino. He's the chairman and CEO of Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust. Get a better sense of where his company's going and where his industry is headed. Mr. Cardino, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, sir. Good, Good Have to a see you. Thank All right. you. All right. So, Joe, obviously, the industry's taking it on the chin. Uh, J.P. Morgan with a piece saying uh, your uh, funds from operations guide well below the street. uh, When you recently reported, your stock is almost at its 52-week low. It's got an 8% yield. And yet, every move that I've seen you make, whether it be changing some of these weak anchors to this Fashion District project, they've all been good. So can you explain to me the disconnect between what you're doing and how people are viewing it?
2: Well, you know, it all goes back to Jason Kelsey's line when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, which is hungry dogs run faster. Um, we've run faster. We've been out in front of the problems. We've we've sold off 40 percent of our of our portfolio. And a lot of those have done quite poorly. You sold
1: the bad stuff. You, know, you s- sell the sold, good stuff to fund sold the bad. 17
2: malls. Twenty five anchors have closed in those, 20, in those 17 malls we sold. Right. And, and the result has been that in the assets we kept, we reinvested. We took we took back 12 anchors. Ten of them are leased. Two are about to be leased. Um, and so we're, we're well ahead of the curve as it relates to the problems, the headwinds that we see in the, in the retail space.
1: But, you know, you did say your first quarter that the bankruptcies, there would be more bankruptcies. But it mm-hmm. seemed like that, that would be the low quarter.
2: Well, exactly. I mean, we... Look, bankruptcies are never a good thing, right. but we've turned them into a tailwind, okay. right? Of the of the 12 department stores that we either took back or got back, we've increased the rent by an eight multiple, right? Getting, getting returns in the high single digits and replacing them with tenants like Burlington and TJX and Dave and & Buster's, all tenants that are going to drive more traffic and drive more sales to our
1: properties. It's important for people to note that Sears has gone from 27 to 8, JCPenney 31 to 16, Macy 25 to 14. And I presume the remainders are good. Like whatever's left of Macy's, I know is doing well.
2: Look, we've got we've got strong anchors remaining. Right. I mean, the rationalization that's occurred in the department store space has been a good thing. Yes. Right? We, we didn't need that many Macy's or that many Sears or that many JCPenney. The result is you replace them, if you've got strong assets, right. with better tenants, you drive more traffic and more sales. <laughs>
1: One of the things that we've seen we've been talking about is there is a renaissance of the remaining retailers. They're almost all beating their numbers, plus the apparel companies are killing it. That's apparel that is often sold in a mall. So what I'm wondering is, has the perception of, which I've been part of, uh, overshadowed uh, a reality of stronger companies coming in? And here I'm thinking about the fashion district in Philadelphia, under retail. You make that point right at the top saying Kansas City has more high-end retailers in Philadelphia under retail downtown and the companies that you're bringing in are not your traditional apparel companies
2: no I mean we're down to around 40 percent of our of our malls are apparel you know we've differentiated to dining entertainment uh, health and beauty fitness on and on and on I mean the, the very different Curation of, of of tenants that we that we've done in our properties, and we'll do a similar right. thing at the at the uh, fashion district where we'll bring in you know entertainment. I mean live entertainment right. venues and all all kinds of uses that are you know it's not your grandmother's mall anymore. No, look,
1: I way. was there when the uh, the gallery when the gallery opened right. downtown, and it was all those traditional department stores. And my mom worked at at, at Litz, my dad worked at Gimble, so I was like, wow, it it's Renaissance. But but actually, that's not the way the millennials shop anymore, right? No, that don't. is my generation, but the millennials want experiences and you're giving them those.
2: Yeah, who would have ever thought virtual reality in a mall? Right. That's, that's real today. But, you know, look, the, the best test for us is, one, occupancy is headed up. Two, our sales year to date are up 8.2%. 8.2% year to date. And and our renewal spreads are trending are trending positive. So all of the metrics that one looks at to to say
1: how are they doing, are positive. Right now and 95.9 percent occupancy. Right, that's correct. I think that what me correct me, if I'm wrong, but there's just not a lot of people who follow you. It's not big, but at the same time, I know you from when I was growing up as one of the most conservative operators. Somehow people feel that you've taken on more risk. You've taken on dramatically less risk.
2: Well, we've we've been very careful in our capital allocation. We've sold assets off and used that capital to strengthen our balance sheet and invest in quality assets. The result of which is, this is the time to buy PEI, right? We're tremendously undervalued. Our dividend is safe. Our dividend is safe. In fact, we've got $14 million in in pent-up revenue that we think over time we're going to be able to increase the dividend.
1: Well, it's funny. There's a guy I know who wrote an article on the web who was just saying, hey, listen— uh, if you don't get the stock, if you don't buy the stock, it's going to get taken over by someone and I read it. And I said, you know what? That's that's actually a possibility if you, it, it, because you've got great properties and it's worth more than selling for.
2: Exactly. Look, my job is to drive shareholder value. Right. If to do that, you know, we, we need to think strategically. We're open to that.
1: There you right? go. Well, you just heard everything, and that's exactly how I feel about it. Joseph Cordino, Pennsylvania Real Estate Investment Trust, PEI, Chairman and CEO, a radically reformed REIT that's not getting the credit for it. Stick with Kramer. Thanks, Jim. One noticeable decline today is Micron. Now, this is a stock that I've been telling you to worry about because after a reported blowout quarter, the stock peaked and it's been going down. It seems a little overdone, but that's a fragile situation. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you i find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.
0: I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe.